going to continue our series through 1 Peter tonight. Before we do, let's pray together. Lord, we just ask for grace and help. And now, Lord, we, we probably need this message more than ever. And I pray that you would help us to be a people, Lord, who would uh, take these things to heart. Lord, we, uh, we've been remarkably comfortable for so long, Lord, but we know that that's not typical for the Christian life. And so I pray that you'd prepare us, Lord, to... Suffer well for you in whatever form that may be, Lord. Help us learn from your servant, Peter. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Peter 3. And I just want to remind us quickly where we've been so we can pick up tonight. Uh, So far in the book of Peter, we've we've seen how Peter uh, began by reminding the churches that he's writing to that they are God's chosen people his elect exiles in the world, and that means that this world is not our home as followers of Jesus Christ. We have been given an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for us. And remember, that's the the language of the Old Testament, that an inheritance is, you know, it's yours, but you only receive it, right, at at the proper time. In the same way, we have something that is kept for us that, that nothing can take away from us, yet we only receive it at the proper time. But this gives us hope in this world that is often difficult. Uh, and this hope actually is our power. Because when we have hope that it won't always be like this, when we have hope and trust and faith that Jesus is going to ultimately work all things together for good, then that gives us power not to despair, but to continue to live in faithful obedience to Christ. And so he enjoins us to live holy lives during this, during our sojourn, during our exile, uh, because this world isn't all there is. And we'll ultimately be rewarded in Christ so we can be holy now, even if it costs us in this age. Uh, And in fact, we know that it will. Just as Jesus was rejected, if we follow him, we will be rejected too. Um, But as we do this, as we live pure and holy lives, what we'll do is we'll show the world that our hope is in Christ and not in the world. And practically, what does that look like? And we've talked about how uh, over the the, uh, good bit of um, end of chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, Peter talks practically about what a life that honors God looks like in the time of our exile. And that uh, looks like submission uh, to proper authorities in the fear of God, citizens to government, servants to masters, and wives to husband. And finally here in our passage, Peter moves from these uh, specific things to uh, general exhortations about what it looks like to live for Christ in a fallen world. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight as he continues to beat on this, um, uh, this theme that he is, and that is the blessing of suffering for good. The blessing of suffering for good. And so if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Verse 8. Finally, all of you, 
have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and let his and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The Word of God may be seated. So uh, tonight, again, I have a sermon in a sentence, and it is this. Righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer, let it be for doing good. Righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer, let it be for doing good. So here I said that he moves from specific, particularly the topic of submission in various relationships as a, as a way to live honorable lives Uh, in a hostile world. The second part here is he begins some general exhortations, particularly here to the body of Christ. He uh, calls believers, first of all, to have uh, unity of mind. Uh, Unity of mind there in verse 8. This means that Christians, we followers of Christ, one of the things that's going to characterize who we are, and as Jesus said, be the identifying marker that we belong to him, is our relationship with one another. And so these, he's enjoining these specific things. And note, they all relate to how we, not just how we act as individuals, but they relate to how we, uh, they, they deal with how we relate to one another. And so that's, that's, that's hugely important in Peter's mind here, is how we live together as the body of Christ in a hostile world. The first thing he calls us to is unity of mind. That is, to be, we're to be united in thought and heart. There should be a harmony among the believers, right? It has to be because we as believers, we have the most important and ultimate things in common that we share, right? We have the same great object of our affection, Jesus Christ. We're all members of the same family. We all, we've all been equally forgiven of our sins and been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're united in forgiveness and love and service to see Christ glorified in the world, and so one thing that can, be, that can deeply wound our testimony uh, to a lost world is divisiveness within the church, which unfortunately is all too common. So divisive spirits and attitudes should be put to death. We should be quick to resolve issues, to forgive, to believe the best, to, to refuse to nurse bitterness, and to give no foothold to the devil. So we're to be unity of mind. The second is that we're to be sympathetic. 
We're to be sympathetic. This means to be a sharer of other sufferings. Okay? It means um, this is a letter particularly on suffering, and we're to account for people's experiences and live with them accordingly and in an understanding way, kind of, kind of like Peter said, husbands to wives there, live in an understanding way. We're to bear people's sufferings with them and be part of what God uses to carry each other through. We have to, uh, we have to be sympathetic. We have to, you know, we have to share in sufferings with one another. I mean, you know, if we're going to make it, <laughs> we're going to need each other. We just, we just, we can't, we're, we're not going to make it all the way to the end alone. So we need help from other believers to share our sufferings with us and be sympathetic with one another. The next thing he calls us to is brotherly love. Brotherly love. And so this clearly speaks to the reality that believers are part of the same family. Okay? We're, we're family, but, but you know, it, the family of Christ is, in fact, a longer-lasting family than our natural family. And so being a family of Christ, uh, I mean, truly, we should treat one another as members of the same family, love one another as members of the same family. And that's what that concept of brotherly love is. And so, we should, and so we should strive to love one another in that way. That if they're part of our church family, they're part of my family. And that will be a witness of uh, the fact that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what Jesus said would happen. Next thing that we're to, to have towards one another, Peter says, is a tender heart. A tender heart. Literally, the word uh, in the Greek is good bowels. Thanks for that image, Pastor. Um, So, the ancients referred to bowels, your guts, basically, as the seat of your emotion. So we don't we don't speak like that. We 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 speak of the heart as being the seat of our emotions. So most translations go that route because that's what we typically mean. But it's literally good bowels. What it means literally means to have to hold good feelings toward one another. To have a disposition of good, of affection for one another. That is, we're supposed to strive to have a natural bent to be for one another, you know? You know, sometimes in life, either because of our own personal experience or because of our experiences with a certain individual, the tendency can sometimes be with certain people you just kind of, you lean away instead of lean into, Right? And what he's saying is we need to strive for a heart of tenderheartedness. That is, if we feel ourselves doing like this, we need to say, no, I need to do like this. I need to lean in. To, 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 to stir in ourselves a tenderheartedness, a compassion, a good, feel, good feelings toward one another and to hold those and to preserve those in our hearts toward one another. And then finally, Peter exhorts us to have a humble mind, to have a humble Mind that is, we're to be, we're to reject pride, and arrogance, and and self-assertion, right? And just kind of and just kind of you know putting ourselves out there and demanding our own way. It means we nurture attitudes of of general deference for others. Uh, Paul talks about uh, humility in Philippians two, talking about Christ, um, but but he gives the example of Christ. But he calls us to he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Uh, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So a humble mind then, as opposed to being, you know, inward focused, the humble mind is outward focused. And so that's the posture of the heart that he's calling us to, that in our relationships with one another, we're not, if we're seeking our own in our relationships, then, then essentially we're just devouring people to meet our own needs. But he's saying that's not the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is to have a heart that's not inward focused, but outward focused so that we're actually seeking the good of others rather than our own advantage. And so, and so notice here all these things that he is calling us to. Notice how all of them, it's not just, you know, what, you know, what I'm supposed to do as an individual, but they, they all speak to how we're supposed to live together. Because in Peter's mind, this is the, this is the only way we can survive in a hard world. But not just that, but it's, it's, it's part of the, the beauty and the testimony of Christ is how we live together as believers with one another. And so, may the Lord give us unity of mind, sympathy towards one another, brotherly love, love one another as a family, tenderheartedness and humbled minds. And, 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 uh, and as we, we live that, I believe it will become increasingly attractive to, a, to an increasingly dark world where people grow up in their own natural families and don't experience things like this. And the more that we can embody it in our lives as a church family, people will see that and be drawn to him. And so he first exhorts uh, the church uh, here, but then he turns in the following verse, um, in verse 9, about how then we live towards outsiders. So we live within the body of Christ this way, but then, how do we live towards outsiders? Where in verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so, uh, this is huge. Jesus taught this. The Apostle Paul taught this. Uh, this is a powerful verse. Don't repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. I've said it before, and I'm just going to keep saying it because unless you hear it and think about it ahead of time, when the temptation comes, you won't be ready for it. But the greatest temptation you'll ever face to sin is when you are greatly sinned against. The greatest temptation you'll ever face to do evil is when a great evil has been done against you. And what will happen is you will justify it because they did it. They did this to me. And not only that, but hear me now, but other people around you will say, yeah, you need to get them. And other people will justify it. But look, it doesn't matter if we can justify it. It doesn't matter if our friends can justify it. What matters is, can I stand before God with a clean conscience? Having repaid evil for evil. No, we can't. And so what Peter calls us to truly is something supernatural. Supernatural to return evil with good. To return hate with love. To return curses with blessings. It's, it's only something that can be done supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit and can only be done if you exercise faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that Jesus sees the situation and understands it and knows it. Faith that God will vindicate the situation. He'll work it out. He will redeem it for good. That, that nobody ultimately gets away with anything. But either their sins are paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, or they will pay for their own sins in hell, but no sin will go unpunished. 
and knowing that God will see and he will fight for you and he will vindicate you. And so that frees you up from having to do justice yourself because you know God will do justice for you. And so that frees you to do what? To do the supernatural. Return evil with good. Return hate with love. Return curses for blessing. We're free from that because we believe that God will ultimately deal with it and vindicate with it. And that, again, is supernatural. It can be only done. You can only do that if you really believe what we're talking about here. And astoundingly here, if you look at the verse, it says, Peter says that we are called to this. For this you have, for to this you have been, uh, for this you have been called, he says. And so, we will experience these things, and what Peter is saying is that these, these are part of the, these are, it's part of the, our calling as Christians. And so suffering and even evil that we receive as followers of Jesus Christ, these things aren't accidents. They're part of, they're part of the calling that we have upon us as Jesus Christ. These things are opportunities that, that, that are entrusted to us and that, and that the way we respond to them has the opportunity to show that our hope is not in this world, that it's in Jesus Christ. This, this kind of thing that I'm talking about, you know, repaying evil with good, that is truly supernatural. And, 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 if, and if God has given you the supernatural grace to believe that and do that, and he calls you to suffer for it so that you will do that, so that people see you and they say, I can't believe that they're handling it like that. What is that? It's a calling that God has placed on you to do what? To show the world that your hope is not in the world. To show the world through you that Christ really does make that big of a difference. To show the world that we really, that what we come and talk about on Sunday mornings isn't just uh, something that, you know, makes me feel good, but that I really believe it. Because you'll find out what you really believe when you feel like you've been wrong. And so this is an opportunity. It's a calling upon us. We're called to it because we're following in the footsteps of our Savior, right? Jesus came for the purpose of suffering. That's the whole reason he even came into the world was to give his life as a ransom for many. And so if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, that it is going to happen to us. And so it's just a question of how we're going to handle it. Are we going to handle it like Jesus handled it? Who, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, as, as we talked about in chapter 2. When he was uh, cursed, he did, not, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Right? Jesus was on the cross, and he prayed for the people killing him. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. And, on, and as a result of this, Peter says, we do this uh, because, he says, end of verse 9, that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. <laughs> you know, we, Jesus talked about it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about, you know, blessed are the persecuted. For great, you know, rejoice and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. There's an unspeakable reward for those who endure suffering for Christ's sake, and who lean on him and trust in him enough to return evil with good, to pray for their persecutors, to, to as, as Paul said in Romans 12, to, 
you know, give their hungry enemies food and give their thirsty enemies drink. There's a great reward. There's a great reward for that. It truly shows that our hope is in heaven and not in the world. And, by the way, it's the only thing that Jesus showed good to evil people because we're the evil people. And it's only because Jesus did that that we're saved. And so part of it, too, will be this, that's, that it, in, it, there will be cases in our lives where we are treated wrongly, and then the way we respond to that wrong will actually melt the hearts of those people. And then they'll be drawn to Christ, and they'll be saved. You know, let me tell you one thing that will not save anybody. When you're wrong, you wrong in return. Guarantee you, that's not going to save anybody. But if we respond like Jesus did, it may very well be used by God to draw them to Christ. And the reward, Peter says, and Jesus says, is great. And he confirms this with an Old Testament quotation. Um, In verses uh, 10 through 12, he quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. And these are supporting Peter's point there. So uh, these verses, uh, 10 and 11, read, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And so he's quoting Psalm 34, and uh, he's just using that to support the, the argument that he's making. Psalm 34 is about doing good, to, do, living a righteous life, even in the face of opposition. And, and, and Psalm 34 here says that there's a blessing for that. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, is that, is that what you want? Then he says, then let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So this is just a, it's just a general truth that if, we, that if we pursue righteousness and live holy and honorable lives of doing good to people and, seeking, and pursuing and seeking peace with people, that we'll be blessed. And of course, I think this takes, uh, in Peter's mind, this takes on, a, it takes on what we call an, an eschatological framework, an, an end times framework. Peter recognizes, Peter recognizes that, I mean, it is true, oftentimes, generally speaking, that if you live a good life in this life, you know, there'll be, there are, in fact, blessings that, you know, attend to that. But at the same time, Peter's no, not ignorant. He's writing to suffering Christians. He recognizes that there will be many circumstances in this life that you could be the most righteous person, you know, the, most, the, the, most, the, the best person there is. Jesus Christ was the best person there, there was, and he didn't, you know, live his best life now. He paid the price for it. He suffered for it. And so this good life, this, the good life and the good days that ultimately, for those who live righteously, will not ultimately come now, it will come later. A life lived in righteousness now will be rewarded with eternal life, the blessing of eternal life to come. And that's, and that's what... Uh, and that's, I believe, what Peter has in view here. And he says why this is so, uh, he says why this is so in verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous 
and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We should think about that verse. We should think about that verse. And we should let that guide our lives in Christ, right? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. If if you're if you're if you desire in your heart to live a life pleasing to God and you seek to act righteously in all that you do, the Bible says God's eyes are on you. He's watching you. He's for you. What does that mean? It means you don't have to be afraid. It means if if doing the right thing in this particular situation is gonna hurt you in some way or be costly in an earthly sense, he's saying, Well, look, don't worry about it. You don't have to be afraid of that. Just you just do the right thing, and guess what? God's watching. He'll deal with it. He'll take care of the results. You just do the right thing. And in the same way, if you can believe, I mean, astounding, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see, and that's the thing. It's like sin is so dark that it blinds people's mind. That people, you know, who... They're just, they're just doing their thing. They're just living for, you know, if, 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 I, if I'm going to cut a corner to kind of put things in my favor, if I'm going to manipulate in this situation, or if I can, if I can take advantage of this situation, or whatever it is, people do evil. They don't realize that they're picking a fight with God. And his face is going to be against them who do evil. And so the blessing is future And even if we live righteously now, even though it may cost us in the short term, it'll be eternally rewarded in the long term. And what we'll do is we'll show the world that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. So, righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer, let it be for doing good. So now let's look at the next part of that sermon in a sense. Righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer... Let it be for doing good. We see this in verse 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so, um, Peter's next focus here is that sometimes we suffer, and not all suffering is for righteousness' sake. And so what he's saying is, if we do suffer, make sure it is for righteousness' sake. Sin brings with it its own misery, and uh, most of us are aware of that. And in fact, I would say sin brings the worst misery because it's the kind that we've brought on ourselves. But as followers of Christ, if we're going to suffer, Peter says, then let it be for righteousness' sake and not for sin's sake. In verse 13, he says that if we're zealous for doing good, then no one can ultimately harm us. No one can ultimately harm us. And again, in a general sense, if we're zealous for doing good, you know, that's, that's going to keep us out of a lot of situations. And it's going to, and it's going to uh, just from a practical perspective, you know, put us in a, a position to experience God's blessing here. But, of course, we know that that's not always a reality. Uh, that's not always a reality. Um, there will be seasons 
that, that of suffering that come upon believers precisely because of the conviction that we hold in Christ. So, but regardless of this, if we're zealous for what is good, nothing can ultimately harm us. But if we should suffer for righteousness sake, he says, you will be blessed, as we just talked about. And then he says, he says, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them. You know, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, fear is very easy to give into. You know, I don't know how this coronavirus stuff's going to play out, but I'm... I'm 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 not scared of the virus. I'm I'm more scared of how people are going to respond to the virus. People are going to start freaking out, and bunch a whole lot of people freaking out usually. And yeah, well, yeah. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to fear. God's in control. We don't have to be afraid of the future. God holds the future. We don't have to be afraid of the world. The world belongs to God. We don't have to be afraid of the government. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We don't have to fear those who say we're on the wrong side of history. Jesus is the Lord of history. Human history is the story of Jesus Christ came into the world to forgive us of our sin and bring us back into right relationship with God. The only side I care about being on is Jesus' side. And when Jesus comes back, according to Jesus' own words, there are going to be a lot of people who thought they were on Jesus' side and realized they weren't. And so my biggest concern is that if you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. Jesus said these astounding words, so comforting. He said, fear not, little flock. It is, my good, <laughs> it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock of coronaviruses and government. They, they can't do anything to God. They can't change God's plans. They can't change God's purposes. So let's believe in God. Let's not be afraid. And that, by the way, will be our witness, our testimony. We don't have to be afraid. We trust in God. And, 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 and so we just, you know, we just, we just got to be ready, you know. When following Christ costs us freedoms, which I believe it will, we just have to be ready. Don't get mad. Just say, just... Just preach Christ. Just plead with people to believe in Christ. You know, life, life was always short. Life was always fleeting. We just forget it. We forget that. Trust in Christ and he'll hold us. And then he goes on in verse 15 to say, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason that uh, for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the alternative then to giving in to fear, Peter says, the alternative is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. So the contrast, I believe, means this. If you're giving in to fear, if you're giving in to fear, then basically you're putting man 
And the fear of man, you're giving the fear of man the pride of place in your heart. The place of prominence in your heart. And so the response to that is to say, no, don't fear men, but do this. Honor Christ, the Lord, as holy in your hearts. In other words, only let Christ, let Christ be the only one on the throne of your heart. Let him be the only one that you fear. And if that's the case, then you don't have to be afraid, he says, of anything else. So honor him as holy. Don't, honor, don't fear men as holy. Fear Christ as holy. Trust in him and hope in him. And then when you do that and you live for Christ in difficult situations, Peter anticipates that you're going to be asked for a reason for the hope that is within you. Right? So think about... Think, so we're... To, so Implied here is that Peter understands that the way we endure suffering is that we're going to do it in such a way that people are going to look at the way we endure and say, how do they have hope like that? To the point that they're going to ask us about it, and then there's our chance to give a reason for the hope that is within us. This word translated reason here, it could be translated defense. It's the Greek word uh, apologia which where we get the word apologetics from, which is the, the discipline of defending the faith. This is a, call it, we call it apologetics. We, should be, we as Christians should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. We should be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And so um, when people come, when people see, they should see it and they should be amazed. And then we should be able to tell them, Here, here's why I have this hope. <laughs> My hope's in Christ. I believe in him. I've trusted him. I've seen him do these things in our lives. And so this, this hope changes everything. We should, be, we should be the most hopeful people in the world. We should be the most hopeful people in the world. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we fundamentally hopeful at heart? How does that show in our lives? You know, it's one thing to say we have a hope, right? It's another thing, though, it's another thing that when life hits us hard, we respond just like everybody else does. We can say we have a hope, but what our hope really is comes in the time of testing, the time of trial. So the question is, do we really have this hope? Do we really believe this? Will, will we really respond in such a way that people will ask us, man, how do you have that hope that is within you? And then that's our chance, our chance to give a defense of the faith. And, you know, and people all the time, when talking about apologetics, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. The questions that people are asking about Christianity are really the same questions that people have been asking for 2,000 years. And so if you ever face a serious question about things that you don't know, I just, I, you know, I'd be happy to point you in, in the right direction. I don't know of a single question that hasn't been ably answered. And so the, the, point, the point of this is that Peter goes on to say, and yet we must do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. We must do it with gentleness and respect. And so, if we have good arguments but a bad attitude, 
we still lose. And so when we have this hope in Christ, and we're living out this hope that we have in Christ, and we are engaging people about our faith, we must do it, he says, with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, he says, we're to do it with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience, right? We're supposed to have a clear conscience in everything that we do. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If, if something violates your conscience, then don't do it. Then don't do it. And if you have violated your conscience, then you need to make it right. Um, he who knows what is right to do and does not do it, the Bible says, is sin, has sinned. <clears throat> but see, as we live in this way, as we live in this way, um, Peter says, he says, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, verse 16, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Okay? So again, he, he's really just coming back full circle in what he's been saying all along. We live holy lives of faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. And when we do, that will be testimony of our witness and testimony of our faith. And, and as we live good lives, at times, people will revile us. And in fact, in verse 16, it actually says that they'll revile the good behavior. That is, that it will be the good behavior itself that is reviled. Okay? That means that some people will be so opposed to belief in Jesus Christ that they'll find a way to revile even the good things we do. But, he says, but that's the whole point, is that we should live good lives so that when they revile the behavior, they'll be, they'll be put to shame. In other words, we should live lives of such utmost character and integrity and above reproach in everything that we do so that even if someone tries to level an accusation against us, any sane-minded person will be able to say, No. And they'll be put to shame. And then finally, in verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so his argument comes full circle here. We're going to suffer. Not all suffering is for good. <laughs> so, if we, so if we suffer as Christians, make sure that it is. In other words, you know, if, if we sin, if we get ourselves in some kind of situation and have to pay the price for it, that's of no credit to us. But if we lived righteously before God and have to suffer for it, that's a, uh, that has its own reward, Peter says. And note here, too, as, as I close, this little phrase that I think is very important. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If we suffer in this life, it's not, a, it's not apart from God's will. It's not apart from God's will. And that should actually be a comfort. That should actually be a comfort to us. God has a plan and a purpose for everything that he does, even for suffering. God had a plan and a purpose for Christ's suffering. So certainly God has a plan and a purpose for our suffering. And so that means, and so that, that, that it should be comfort to us. Because when we're suffering, we're not saying up there, God's just wringing his hands, oh my goodness, I wish I could do something about this situation. That's not what he's doing. Sometimes we're, Peter said it, called to this. Sometimes we're called to this. Why? Because, you see, we're, we're so focused on the here and now, but look, God's working with eternity. What is it if, if God wants me to suffer a little bit now to show the riches of who he is 
to a lost world, and he's going to reward me for it later. What is that to me? And so we don't have to lose hope. We can embrace our suffering. We can endure it patiently by faith, looking to God, knowing that he's working something in it, that he's working something through it, and that it will carry its own reward. So as we close, righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer, let it be for doing good. Righteousness will be rewarded. So if you must suffer, let let it be for doing good. Jesus is our example because Jesus suffered for us. He suffered for righteousness' sake, and God did the greatest good that has ever been done through his suffering. His death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, so that if we believe in him and trust in him, he forgives us of all of our sins and gives us that hope that nothing can take away. And as I close tonight, if you don't have that hope, it can be yours, and I pray you receive it through faith in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for tonight.